Hey everybody, this is Larry Little and you're listening to Crossing the Line, a podcast where I talk with people about moments in their life and their leadership when they cross the line from leading with their head to leading with their heart, and then from leading with their heart to leading with their head. Today on the show, I'm having a conversation with a dear friend and an executive for many years. His name is Phil Marshall. He's vice president of a large aerospace engineering company and has been in the aerospace engineering business for a long, long time. But more importantly than that, he is an incredible leader who understands how to cross the line when he's leading. So I want you to really stay tuned today because he is full of nuggets of wisdom and truth. I mean, the, the whole podcast, you, you could just take notes and gather this, this uh, wealth of knowledge, wealth of information and, and nugget for your personal life as well as a nugget for your professional uh, life as well. But there, there are tons of those. So let's jump into that conversation now. Man, I'm excited about today's podcast uh, because I get to have a conversation with my dear friend and somebody that I truly admire. Uh, I'll tell you, you can tell a lot about a leader um, when you walk with them and you see how they handle different kinds of, of adversities and successes and victories and failures. And, uh, and you see that character. And this guy um, is a tremendous leader. He's taught me so much. He's, he's just a good guy. His name is Phil Marshall. And I am excited to hang out with Phil and, and talk today about crossing the line and see how Phil has crossed the line in his leadership from just leading with his head to leading with his heart and how both are important. But I'll tell you a little bit about Phil. Phil is uh, currently the vice president and general manager for Nordam a Manufacturing Group located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're an aerospace company. He spent his life in that industry. He has led at some of the largest companies uh, that you know and, and you've heard of with United Launch Alliance and Boeing and others. And uh, he, he's in his career, he's been a very successful, tremendous leader, but somehow has through all of that, never forgotten who he is and, and has always had that ability to, to lead from his heart as well as his head. I could go through a laundry list of his accomplishments. I could tell you all about his experience, but just, just know this. He's an executive. He's seasoned. He, he has all the awards and the accolades, but more importantly, um, he understands leadership, and that's what this podcast is about. So, Phil Marshall, my friend, welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. Welcome. All right, Larry. So good to good to talk to you. So good to see you. Hope everything is well with you and the, the family, especially in these challenging times. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. And it is, and, and it is very much a challenging uh, time that we're in and we all are learning and growing and listening and, and that kind of thing. And you're one of the best of the best at that. So let me start by, because our listeners want to hear from you, um, but first, I have to know, how are you? Just tell me, how, how are you during these times, and how are things going for you? Well, well, thank you. I'm doing well. I mean, all things considered, it's, it's as we say, interesting times uh, here in Tulsa. A lot, of, a lot of dynamics, a lot of visibility in the press over the last couple of weeks. But um, I'm proud of how Tulsa has handled a lot of that. I mean, it's, you know, keeping our, our chin up, so to speak. Family's doing well. Um, you know, I've actually had the ability to come into work every day because we're a manufacturing group and we've tried to be aware of all the social distancing and 
and that. So, so we, we've made our way through this. I can't believe that we're talking 120 days, but family is doing very well. Um, you know, it's nice when, when your kids are around you and, uh, we've had kind of our, our own social group, which is just the family and, and we're blessed to, to actually be in that situation. So I just have to know during this time, you know, all of us have had to, to change and do things differently and that kind of thing. But during these last 120 days, uh, what have, what have you really enjoyed about that? What is, what has been good for you during those times during these last 120 days as you've had to kind of change the way you work? Well, you use the term enjoy, and I, I don't know that I actually have had that perspective of enjoyment other than probably the time with the family, um, you know, because we're, I think everybody gets so busy, your day-to-day -day activities, you know, we're always doing something, but even probably that time to actually slow down a little bit, uh, a lot of cooking at home and that social time of where you're with that circle of, of trust. I, of course, we have a grandson, he's just over two and he's lively, but the goodness is we're able to be there and see him and, and enjoy him. And I think that that's, that's where we're really blessed. I, I thought that might be exactly where you would go. You've taken advantage of this, <laughs> of this time to be with your family. And that's, that's awesome. It is weird to say enjoy, but you know, I think it's, it's been an opportunity for us to, to really do some things that maybe we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do like, be with our family, cook a little more, hang out with the grandchild. That's awesome. What, what are some of the things that, um, if you were just honest and we're just talking about you for a moment in this time, um, that you struggled with, what, what are some things that have, have been difficult for you? You know, from, uh, from a work standpoint, um, it's interesting because when we first entered into this pandemic, this crisis, we, we tried to keep, keep things operationally going, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we were taking care of our people. And so a lot of our support groups were all working remotely and they, they learned, or we learned to effectively work remotely over the last, you know, 90, 120 days, we ended up having a lot of our folks come back really within the last two to three weeks. The, the challenge, one of the things I found is, you know, we, we use the term boots on the ground of where you're physically there every day. And one of the things I found challenging was where we're seeing what's going on here daily. And it's hard for those folks that are remote to really understand the day-to-day -day interface. And so yeah. you have to have a level of patience and understand that they, they, they aren't there. And I always felt like I was blessed that I was able to come to work every day. Right. even though, you know, we're, we're completely aware of what the environment is, but we did very well in terms of, you know, min, not a lot of number of cases and taking care of each other. Patience and understanding. Uh, what great wisdom from Phil. Uh, when we talk about going through these, these difficult times, it is important. It's important for me to think about that, not only professionally, but personally as well. Don't we all need just a bit uh, more of, of the ability to give uh, patience to others and to try to understand where others are great wisdom from from Phil here so I think it was having to have patience and understanding that just because somebody is not physically here doesn't mean that they don't care deeply in terms of things that are going on every day yeah that, that's a huge challenge that we hear um, across the country is how in the world do you stay engaged 
remotely? You know, how do you how do you communicate that collaboration and engagement? And we're learning. It's a, but it's a new normal, and it's incredibly difficult. And you have you have, a, and we'll talk about that later. But you know, you have a huge responsibility there at Nordown. I mean, you are you are the guy for the operations, and so that had to be um, a, a bit challenging for you to to try to figure out how to lead this team when you guys have to have boots on the ground to, to touch the equipment to get keep things going. I know that was difficult. I want to, but I want to hang out for just a minute. I want to, to to stop there and hang out with you to talk about uh, these times that we're in, to pick your brain a bit, and then we're going to talk about you personally. But I really respect your wisdom, and um, Phil, talk to us a little bit about where we are in terms of um, this era of racism and awareness of racism. And you guys have been uh, in the middle of some of that in Tulsa, but rather hear from you personally, your heart and your thoughts around uh, where we are and, and what, what we can do about that. Well, you know, thank you. I'm not sure how qualified I am to, to address that, but I'll give you, give you my feelings. I mean, number one, the, the things we heard from Bruce, Bruce Jones and Rebecca is tremendous. Uh, the, the one item I take away is, is as a middle-aged, more senior white man, I'll never know what, those people of color have to deal with middle-aged white man so here are two middle-aged okay i'm going to go ahead and say young middle-aged but middle-aged white men having this conversation uh, who really don't understand i don't understand he doesn't understand but i think it's important that we're having the conversation i think it's important that we're trying to learn how to understand uh, once again more wisdom from from phil here I, I grew up in a very small town in, in the mountains in Colorado, and it was very white. And so although we've got good friends, you know, racially diverse, I, I do not know that. And the idea that I would ever have to worry about my sons walking or running through a neighborhood and potentially getting stopped or hurt, that that's a very big concern. And, and I, I think that the, we, we often like to talk, but if we're talking, we're not listening. Mm. And one of the things that I think you had helped me with was, was active listening. I, I think we joke about it as I have this, I have a black ball on my desk that I call my listening ball. I'm going to grab it because it's right, right here. That's great. This, this, this is my listening ball. And I have to be very deliberate on that because I will have a tendency to express my opinion, especially when I'm leading. And I, so I deliberately try to grab my listening ball. Okay, so this may be um, the biggest takeaway from this whole podcast. The listening ball. Uh, something to trigger us to listen, to shut up and listen. I think it's very powerful. What a great idea. Um, I love the listening ball. And it means while I'm holding that, I, I really am holding it now. I should be listening and not talking. But is to illustrate a point is that if we if we can actively listen and actively listening to me means you, you ought to be able to repeat back to somebody what they said and make sure that that you that you understand them and that they got their point across because we all have a a paradigm with this this pool of knowledge that we bring to a conversation and it's based on past experiences and it may not be completely accurate. And so until we can understand both sides of that conversation, we're, we're doing 
ourselves and each other disservice. Yeah, I think you're you're so wise, and it it does start with listening. And I love I love your tool. I think that's awesome. I think that as two white guys, we're standing you know sitting here talking, having a conversation about something that neither one of us have experienced. Um, I think, but right. but, but here's the thing, um, you know, uh, I, I think we can still make a difference in this arena uh, by listening and learning and using our influence when appropriate to. Uh, to attack this evil thing called racism. Absolutely. Um, but I think, I think it begins with having conversations that for years we've been uncomfortable having, right? We've been uncomfortable. And you, what was it like in Tulsa? Talk to me just a little bit about the, the culture there in the last week or so. Um, I, what, what's going on and in, in where you live and, and your community and how are the people there responding to, to the, um, to the limelight, if you will, that they've been put into. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. We were out of town. We were actually in Colorado and uh, driving back when we had a number of these these rallies that were going on. Um, as a matter of fact, I think when they had the presidential rally, we were driving back into town at that time. And the one thing I will say is that, as opposed to other areas within the country, it it was very you know, for the most part, very peaceful, very respectful. Um, you still see where there's not active listening going on. Um, and you see that on the news, but it's not necessarily representative of what, you know, there's always the rest of the story. I always liked to, back in the day, Paul Harvey would have his, his radio show and it would be the rest of the story. And I, I think that you have to dig a little deeper. You have to really understand what's going on in the community. And so for the most part, I think Tulsa navigated this as well as, as can be expected. Now, unfortunately, we had yesterday in the news, we had two policemen shot mm. and they are in critical condition. And it was wow. by a white man and they captured him. But, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to all of our, you know, the policemen that are there to protect us and serve us. And then they're, they're not quite sure how to act right now because there's so much scrutiny where at the end of the day, they're still trying to serve us. And so I think that, you know, having that active dialogue once again, and I think that that's very helpful. And I like to think that Tulsa is setting a stage in terms of how we can be as opposed to where we are, you know, looking, looking past, looking backwards. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're so right. I love that where we, where we can be. And, um, I, you know, is it too lofty a goal to say that we're going to eradicate racism from our culture? Um, maybe, but it's not too lofty a goal to say we can try, right? We can, we can certainly go after that. And then also to understand how to have better a dialogue and appreciation and training for uh, the police force in our area. Uh, so right. we're trying to balance that. And we've done some things in our company here to both, both undergird and encourage our local police policemen and as well as, um, our, our community at large and as well as some of the underserved communities. We've tried to, to be active in that. And I think that's, that's what, I mean, I think that's what we have to do uh, from, from our perspective. Have you noticed, Bill, in your, in your company at Nordam, um, has this affected the culture there with the, with the employees? Well, I, I, how can it not affect the culture? But um, there's a, a really good example. There was a, 
an article that came out, this was three or four weeks ago, where the CEO of American Airlines was flying on Southwest and had a dialogue with one of the flight attendants on Southwest, and he was reading a book, and forgive me, I don't remember the title of the book, but it created such a big impact to our CEO, and she sent a message out, and we, we saw the dialogue on it, and people ordered the book. I mean, mm. and we did it for free. I mean, we bought copies of this. I still have yeah. to go do my homework and, and read it, but the idea, once again, was there was a an African-American flight attendant flying for Southwest. She didn't know who this individual was that was reading the book. Turned out he was the CEO of American Airlines. Her mother worked for American Airlines. And so they entered into this dialogue, but it was that interface of where the point is, it all starts with having a conversation. Yeah, We all bring a, a paradigm, you know, your, your past experiences into anything that we do, but until we, once again, start that active listening. Uh, you you, you got to get beyond yourself. You got to get beyond your your preconceived notions of what you bring into the table. Well, such wisdom, and and in our vernacular, um, you know, our poor listeners feel uh, feel as a turtle. So, if you want to know more about these uh, lions and turtles and monkeys and camels, um, take a minute to check out the link in the show notes below and you can actually take the make a difference personality test and see what personality uh, traits you have and also there's an explanation of of the personality traits there as well he's a tranquil turtle and he's a lion and so he kind of he kind of bounces back between those two personality traits but what happens is uh, a tremendous amount of plethora if you will of wisdom that that he can give us so thank you for for sharing uh, about a difficult topic I want to, I want to just kind of turn the corner, if you will. And I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what made Phil feel and, uh, and, and kind of get into that just a bit. So take us back to your childhood. Who was Phil Marshall? Where did you grow up? And, and what are some things that, uh, that you learned growing up that, that made you who you were today, but let's, let, who you are today, but let's start up with where'd you grow up, Phil? Give us, tell us about your childhood. So I, I grew up in the mountains west of Denver, uh, elevations 9,100 feet above sea level. Wow. Um, I consider myself a native Colorado, and although I was born in Jackson, Wyoming, because it happened to be where my dad was working that summer when I was born, uh, but my family was all, you know, grandparents were all born in Colorado, and that's where I grew up. Um, Small town in the mountains, we, the joke is don't blink or you'll miss it. It's about 160 people, and we probably have half as many dogs. If you added the dogs in with 160 <laughs> people, we might get to two, 240. And, you know, at the time, you, you really think, well, okay, I had a normal childhood. But the, the thing that as you look backwards, it's like, well, unless you've been exposed to something different, then whatever you have is normal. And you know, I considered ourselves middle class. We probably weren't tremendously well off, but my mom was a school teacher. As a matter of fact, she uh, she was my kindergarten teacher. Wow. And one of the first doses of reality is when I had to go to kindergarten, and instead of calling her mom, I had to call her Mrs. Marshall. Oh and there were God. repercussions. Did I not say Mrs. Marshall? And so setting expectations there. Um, but yeah, small, you know, small town. We kind of went to county 
uh, elementary schools and ultimately county high school. Uh, my dad actually started out, he was working at the ski area. He was running a ski shop. And then he, he and my mother got divorced, which was, that was kind of a, that was traumatic. I think I was around sixth grade at that time. And, but I will say that, that from a family perspective, they did their best to make sure there was continuity for my brother and me. And so we never, I don't think we felt the downside of the divisiveness that you could see within that, you know, anytime a divorce or that type of thing comes into a family. But we actually had a chance to travel um, because my, my dad and my stepmother worked for the airline. So, you know, we had a chance to do things probably my peers in a town of 160 people didn't have a chance to do. Um, so, and I, it's hard to say that you're worldly when you come from a town of 160 people, right. but, um, you know, went into you know high school, I grew up about 10 miles from a ski area. So I started skiing when I was two years old and joined the high school ski team. Um, was not necessarily a stellar athlete. I played football, but I was so small. I think that they just needed me to hold the football as opposed to run with it. Um, but skied from, you know, all through high school. And, and that's kind of a different sport, especially throughout the, the country, because, you know, there's very limited that there's that many people where you would actually even have a high school ski team. Right. Um, did that. I actually was in the high school band. I played the trumpet and uh, turned out I, I ended my high school. I was uh, second in my class, which at the time you think that's a kind of that's a big deal. Until you realize that second in the class of 85 people is not that big a deal. It just kind of is what it is. And that was my, I'll tell you, Larry, that was one of my first doses of reality is I, um, I, I'd actually planned to go to college out in California and had been accepted out there, but I, I got an in-state scholarship and went to Colorado State University. And, and when I got there, as opposed to, being exceptional, I found out I was within the engineering school, I was just average. And that's a real wake up call when, you know, you've been doing well, your grades are good throughout all high school, you know, how hard I had to work. I mean, it wasn't extremely hard, but now you just become average. And so that honestly, that was a real wake up call for me. You know, that was the first thing where you go, wow, you're not as great as you think you are. Right. <laughs> right. A good lesson learned. Out of that, that childhood, and that was, certainly was one lesson, what, what, think about something that occurred or, or that, you, that you grew into to get some of these characteristics that you have right now in your leadership. Can you think back at, at this small town guy who loved to ski and, and grew up in, you know, with, with dogs everywhere? And, but what, what characteristic would you say or characteristics would you say you developed or you, you um, gained from from growing up like that in Colorado. Well, you mentioned my my personality. I don't know whether you you're you're the smart one on this or whether you grow into a personality, but certainly just having a few close friends in a small town, um, probably that's where a little bit of that turtle comes in. Um, but at the same time, learning to you know we had to do a bunch of different things, like especially in high school is you were in the band, you played football, you're on the ski team, you know, academics. And so associating yourself with different groups of friends um, and, and, and kind of mapping out what it is you want to do. My, my parents, 
set very high expectations for me. I mean, they're demanding, but I'll tell you, there's one, one story that still stands out to me and, and you'll, you'll laugh at this, but I mean, it's still very, very visible to me. And this goes back. I, I was staying with my grandparents who lived in the same town and we were out, we'd be playing outside, you know, in the summer, you're outside from the time you get up in the morning until it gets dark. And, uh, one of my best friends, they, they found this wallet and his, his parents ran the country store and gas station. They found this wallet that somebody must've dropped. Well, instead of turning it in, he, he hid it and he shared it with me. He said, Oh, and there was like maybe money in it. Well, I think we got tattled on and my grandparents took the two of us down to the police station, which actually was a, was two miles away. And made us go in and and they talked to us and it's like that that lesson was firmly established and so you you want to think that that's over and my parents had gone out to dinner or whatever and i was hoping that you know i could stay at my grandparents that night well they got home and found out what had happened and this was just finding a wallet you know we didn't steal it we just found it right didn't right. turn it in well my father comes in and god bless him you know he he meant well he pulled me out of bed and he, he made me walk home in front of the car with the lights on saying, if you're going to act like a criminal, I'm going to treat you like a criminal. Oh, wow. So, so obviously that, that could be considered, I mean, it's funny now. And I, I use this in terms of some of our ethics training. Cause it's like, look, you're always being watched. But that, that was somewhat, I call a defining moment because it's like, well, I'll tell you what, I find any, I find a dollar on the floor. Now I will go turn it into somebody <laughs> and say that because, because that it's firmly grounded in terms of this is how, this is how you act. This is, this is right and wrong. So I, you know, I, until you actually even asked that question, I'm not sure that I could have articulated that, but it kind of popped into my mind saying, yeah, that was kind of a defining moment in terms of, you know, foundationally who I am today. It, it, that's a, a powerful life lesson, Phil. Thank you for that. That that's amazing. And and then you you so those values, those characters, that 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 uh, that work ethic, the honesty, all those things continue to mold, continue to grow in you, and make you who you are today, which is awesome. Let's move. Let's fast forward. And now you're in uh, you're in college. Talk to us a bit about about what you learned and what you took away from college that has helped you to become the leader you are today. College was, was, you know, I got a degree in mechanical engineering and it was difficult because I was not very good at going in and asking for help. I never, never had to do that in high school. It just, some of the things seemed to come naturally and really struggled. And, and then I will tell you where the defining moment was, we actually, I met my, my wife and she was also in mechanical engineering. And we, as we start to go out, we were starting to, to date, but we start to study together. And as a result of that, my grades got better because I actually had a study partner who then became my life partner. She graduated about six months before I did. Um, cause you know, the way your schedule goes, I had about eight credit hours. I still had to pick up, but, uh, we both graduated with degrees and, um, she ended up getting a job out in Los Angeles working for Northrop. And thankfully 
um, I was able to get a job there as well. And so after we graduated, we were in California for about three years. So you met your beautiful wife and, and you did what all smart guys do. You, you married her. You didn't let her get away. That, that's um, congratulations. See that, that, what a great leadership moment. Yeah, obviously, obviously I'm the smart one in that relationship because I, <laughs> I found some went after that, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still blessed. I mean, we've been married 35 years. I wanted us to walk through some of that. And by the way, congratulations, 35 years. That's a, that's amazing. Congratulations on that, um, on that relationship that, that in and of itself takes a, a ton of hard work, um, for any relationship. So, uh, thank you for that. And I wanted us to walk through that just a bit, um, because you've, you've navigated some storms in your life. You, you've had some, some hard days. Um, and, and I think those, those things that built the foundation and who you are and your character are important to, to understand just a bit about where you've come from, but talk to us about navigating some of the storms in your life, Phil. Yeah, I, I don't know what the, you know, initially storms are, are normal. You know, you've got work challenges, you've got family challenges, things like that. But um, I think over my career, you know, I went from, we were in California for about three years and then our family was on Colorado, I had a chance to go back um, to Colorado um, and it was still, it was working for, it was McDonnell Douglas had opened up a plant building Delta rockets. And so I was privileged enough to be in the, our space, our rocket, the rocket business for a good 25 years. And I, I had degrees of success. You know, you end up doing whatever you're, you're recognized for your accomplishments for doing things. And then you get more responsibility and, and ended up running a, plant in Pueblo, Colorado. And then ultimately we had the chance, the opportunity. I we didn't necessarily recognize it at the time to move to Decatur, Alabama, where we had the Boeing facility, which I, I ended up taking over. And that was all, you know, it's kind of scripted, but, and there's, there's challenges, there's bumps in the road that, that you run into. Um, and, and then we became uh, United Launch Alliance, which I think, you know, obviously still is, their indicator and probably one of the biggest challenges that you walked with me through that was after we had successfully gone through moving work down to alabama um essentially i was told that uh, i was kind of no longer needed and uh, I, I still remember we were at a it was a leadership session um for whatever reason it always seemed like i had to follow dave king so what Phil is referring to here is an executive leadership forum that we ran for years. And in this particular forum, he stood up in front of leaders from across the country who had gathered to, to work through dilemmas and to, to have a brain trust of, of uh, leaders to solve dilemmas. And he basically just uh, shared his heart. He said, you know, I've been set free. And it was one of the most powerful moments um, that we have ever experienced in that executive leadership forum. And People still talk about that moment today. Here was Phil being transparent, vulnerable, authentic, uh, and, and really made an impression on a lot of people uh, in, in the way that he uh, opened up uh, at this particular time in this leadership forum. David would get up and give this eloquent, you know, <laughs> talk, inspirational. And uh, I remember he talked about where there's times where within an organization or whatever for the good of the organization and the good of the individual, sometimes we have to set people free. 
and and you know it sounds like okay you're firing somebody but it really is setting them free to go fit in better and i remember i got up right after that and said well um i've been set free and it's it's very emotional at that time because you're going through the you know you use the term storm it's the turbulence of of what we're dealing with i'm i'm the feeling of i'm no longer valued and you know that that's the near-term emotional side of it hindsight as i look back eight years or or more is, you know, part of it is just running a business. And and what you really have to determine is where you are within that organization. Is it a good cultural fit? And and it, it probably was not the best cultural fit because part of the leadership values at the time of where we're going were not necessarily in alignment w- with me. And I, and I, as I look back, I know that I was not performing at 100%. As a matter of fact, uh, I think you and I had discussed, there's a, a book a colleague gave me at the time. It's called Multipliers. Um, Liz Wiseman is the, is the author, but it talks about under a good leader, you can actually get 120, 140% out of a group. But the the other side of that is a, a leader that's a diminisher you'll only get about 60% out of the people. And it really resonated with me, but you know, as I look backwards, was I using that as an excuse because I didn't fit in? And um, ultimately, what you find out is that if you can, number one is always always finish the job, never give up. And I, I did. And ultimately, I was offered another position within the company, and you know things worked out. But it was also at the time where I, the self you know self analysis was well, maybe I'm not fitting in as well as I should, although I love the business that we were in. And that's when I had a chance to come out here to Tulsa. And, and one of the values of the organization that I work for is that of, of serving leadership. And it just felt right. And, you know, we've had our own challenges that we've navigated over the last eight years. But at the same time, when you feel like you're contributing and adding value, then you, that's where the, where the fit is versus, you know, not everybody's going to fit into every type of organization. And it has to make sure that your your values and where you see yourself leading are in line with that, or it can create that, that uncomfortable condition. You never want to be in a situation of where you're blaming somebody else. I mean, we have to hold ourselves accountable. We have to hold people accountable. But at the same time, I think you've heard me use this term, we deserve what we tolerate. Okay, don't don't forget that phrase. I have used that over and over again in in my leadership. We deserve what we tolerate. Think about that. Take that away from this podcast. We deserve what we tolerate. A powerful statement. And so if 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 I don't do something actively about the condition I'm in, and it is it is difficult. I mean, I essentially went up through the ranks from McDonald Douglas through Boeing. I mean, I, I never really had to apply for a job only a couple of times. And you, and man, it's not a case of entitlement, but you feel like you earn it. But at some point you're going to go in and say, well, it doesn't fit. And until you actually can take a step away and look at the entire picture, you, you may be too close to it to be, you know, can't see the forest because of the trees. Okay. So unpack that for us just a bit. Um, someone is, has just been terminated. 
Um, they, they've been with a company for a, for a long time. Let's say, you know, years, they, they hold a, a position that they work for and they've just been told we no longer need your services. What, what would you say that some of the, the most important things that they can learn, do takeaways, what are some, some things that you can say to them? You've just lost your job. You've just been set free as Dave said, um, what would you say to them, Phil? First thing that I would say is something that, you know, I think you and I discussed is no one else controls your attitude. Only you can control your attitude. So whether you're optimistic, pessimistic, no one else can impact the way you deal with that other than yourself. And so if you go in with a positive attitude, a commitment, you know, there, there may be a couple of leaders that who you feel may have let you down, but there's a lot of other people that are still relying on you. So finish the job, you know, and, and work through that. You know, you, you, you can get up every morning and say, this day is going to be better than the last, or you can get up every morning and say, man, I don't even want to get out of bed, but we choose that. We, it, it's up to us to choose how we, how we navigate that. Um, but you also have to have a very good, support structure and sounding board. And, and that's where, you know, we've developed our relationship over the last, you know, 18, 19, you know, wow. 17 years of where you have got to be able to go in and have somebody where you can have honest and frank discussions and also someone to hold you accountable. I mean, I always expect with you that if you say, Phil, is that really, is that really right? And we have to be a little more thoughtful of it. And, you know, analyze how we're you know you can't if you want to go in and fool yourself that's fine but you're not going to actually mature as a as a leader wow the way the way you would want to uh own your attitude you get to control it finish the job create a support structure that that holds you accountable so you can hold yourself accountable great stuff phil you should write a book that's awesome good good things (laughs) And uh, and the name of the book you said that helped you through that, just so we can make sure we capture that was multipliers. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. Great. Multipliers. So so take us now into you're in this organization. Um, you know you're a VP over um, wow millions and millions of dollars of of, of revenue generation. Uh, help us to know some things that we need to know. Not all of us can do that. Not all of us can lead at your level. But what are some tips that that we need to know as leaders that would help us where we are in our leadership and think. So, so one thing that, you know, as you go back and you still have to constantly analyze where you are and, and, and what we're doing for our people. I mean, as a serving leader, it's not about me. It's about how do I make, make people better. And I think one of the most difficult lessons I had to learn was how to let go. And what I mean by that is, if you're recognized for your accomplishments, for, for your deliverables, for what you analyze, for what you build, et cetera, it is very difficult to be able to relinquish that control to help develop your people. And so, although you know that, you know, I've never asked someone to do a job, even if it's out in the shop, that I'm not, at least not willing to try myself. I may not be the best at it, but I'm willing to try to go do that that you're not above it. I had, uh, when I first got to, uh, Nordam, I, I went through and I shadowed everybody, you know, one day a month just to make sure I understood what people were working on. And that was, that was somewhat selfish because it was just about me trying to learn the business. 
But at some point, you've got to be able to go in and say, okay, I know how to do this, but I really need to actually hold my folks accountable and help guide them through doing that because then you start to develop a stronger team. Hmm. If you're always doing it yourself, which, it, you know, we love as leaders, I think we get in this syndrome, I don't like to call us arsonists, but we love to firefight because it's that hero syndrome. Man, I came in, I solved this. And you have to know when to say, no, I, I've got to be patient, number one. I've got to allow people to come in and try to work through this because if I teach them, then we've actually got that power of the organization of where they're coming in and, and everybody improves. You're pulling people up versus just doing it yourself. I, that, to me, that was one of the more difficult lessons I had to learn of, you know, sometimes you got to take a step back. Hmm. And how – Bill, help us to know, you know, how do we know when to step back? How do we know when to step up? How, how, how do we know where we need to be in that? Is there something that you kind of use to know? Because I know this about you. Um, you you um, walked the, the shop floor. You, you taught me that when you first came to Nordham, you know, you said, uh, I've got to earn the right to lead these people. And you did that by walking through the shop. And I even have gone with you and I've seen how they respond. The, the, the team members respond to you. Um, because you take the time to to stop and visit and you took the time to learn what they were doing to actually learn the skill set and and so you could educate yourself and and earn that um that ability to to lead but how do you know when to do that how do you know when to to, to walk the floor and to get involved or to step back and and give that leadership away how, how do you know well i think you have to differentiate between leadership visibility and approachability, meaning that you're out visible, people know that they can talk to you. There's going to be times where it's, it's urgent. You have to have leadership get involved and we become very tactical. And, and the tactical side of it is sometimes you just have to go get things done. You've got a deadline, you've got a deliverable to either your boss or board of managers, et cetera. But when we can actually get into that strategic mode saying at, at what level are we leading at? The strategic mode is when we can actually take a step back and as leaders paint a vision of where we want to be, whether it's three months down the road, six months, two years versus what do I have to give, you know, deliver within the next five days. So I think your the timing on deliverables that that helps set priorities. Um, but it also has to do with how, how you've been able to build a team. If you've got a team that you trust and inspire, or they inspire you, then then it's a lot easier to relinquish that control. If, if you don't have that trust of the people that are working with you, your colleagues, then people feel a lot of times that they have to go do it themselves. And you've, you've met with my leadership team and my, my peers, and the more that we actually have that level of communication where we break down those barriers, we, we establish that trust, now you're starting to get to where there's that open communication, you use the term vulnerability. And I think being able to show that we're transparent, we don't have a separate agenda, we're willing to be vulnerable. Um, I think that that actually, that's how you earn, you know, you, you don't demand respect with the title, you, you earn it by your actions. So, and I've watched you develop this culture, if you will, of transparency and vulnerability, but how long, do, you know, because, you know, leaders want to, they go, you know, we want to go in, we want to move, we want to get things done. We want to pull people around us and go, 
How long did it take you though, to build that team around you and to, to earn the right to inspire them and to earn their trust and for you to trust them? Give us a, like, how long did it take you to build that culture that you have now on your leadership team? Well, it, it went probably through a series of, of building trust. I mean, when I initially started out at Nordam, so that was 2012, I think when, when I was able to actually bring you in and people knew that this was not, you know, the latest touchy feely, let's all do a group hug that they were actually getting some mileage because people were putting their barriers down. I think that took us probably about 24, 30 months. Yeah. But once you have that and that established a very solid leadership team. And then as all of our responsibilities start to expand that helped establish the trust as we brought other people into that fold, into that dialogue. So as opposed to, well, there's this brand new program that Phil Marshall is trying to bring out, you know, a good half of our leadership team has been doing it for the last eight years. And so it's really where we start to say, Hey, there's more of the same and people now, now it's more where we're trying to be inclusive people. There's a desire for that level of development, which is, completely different than our normal business acumen operational execution. It's amazing to me that 24 to 30 months that takes discipline. It takes patience. It takes consistency. And you were willing to invest all of that to get the product, if you will, the team the cohesiveness, if you will, that you have today. So you had to be very intentional about that, that this wasn't just by osmosis. You came on day one and started building that culture, right? Day one is probably pretty strong, Larry, but probably <laughs> I, I think within I think within ninety days we had an idea there, of where we there. needed to go. <laughs> I love your humility, Phil Marshall. I love it. You, you um, uh, uh, just an amazing leader. Uh, talk to us a little bit about though. Even you at your level of leadership, you have to lead up. You have you have people you report to, your CEO, that kind of thing. The board. Talk to, to us a little bit about how how have you managed. You're the new guy. We're the new guy when you came in years ago, um, you know, parachuting in. How have you led those above you? Well, I think once again, it, it starts out with establishing trust. Um, my boss needed to know that she she could trust that I was very deliberate in my intentions. Um, being visible out on the shop floor, I think, had, had a, a lot of impact. Um, but it still takes development and coaching. I mean, once again, I'm going to hold up the listening ball. I've got to be very deliberate on active listening. And so I've had to be very, very self-aware in terms of my, my interaction and, and interface. And then, you know, as we, as you navigate some of the internal storms that we've been able to see over the last four or five years, um, you always want to look at in your organization of who are your go-to people and depending on what the situation is, there's, there's different needs. But I, I think that that's, that's the main thing is if, if, if I earn the trust of my boss and trust of my peers, knowing that I don't have a separate agenda, that we're still looking out for what's good for the, not just the company, but our stakeholders. Cause it really is, we look at it as an expanded family. I think that that, to me, that's one of the biggest things There's no separate agenda, be transparent, be authentic, Mm. and be who you are you know i can tell you because i have a, and i i hear this theme as we talk and i've worked with your team that you lead and i've i've 
had opportunity to work with, with the CEO, your CEO, and she, I trust you incredibly and, and your team trusts you incredibly. And that's the pattern that I'm seeing as we're talking today is you're a master at building trust uh, with those around you. And you, you want to speak to that for just a minute. Is that, is that something that just happens or are you intentional about building that trust for those around you? Wow, that, that's, that's difficult because I don't know how you can be deliberately saying, I'm going to go make you trust me. I mean, t- to me, trust is earned, right? And it's through your actions. It's probably less about your words, but, you know, do what you say you're going to do. Um, admit when, you're, when you've made a mistake. I mean, to me, that's one of the biggest things that I can always do is say, hey, I'm seeking input. This may not be right. And, and any action that we see within an organization, moving people forward, even if it may be the wrong decision, at least when they see decisiveness and action, that's goodness. But you've got to be willing to raise your hand and say, hey, I, I think we made a left turn. We should have made a right turn. Wow. And, and be willing to back up and reconsider that. And, and then from a process standpoint, make sure you, you don't just tolerate it, but understand what, what was the condition that made you make that decision to turn left instead of right. I don't mean that, you know, politically, obviously, it's more just that juncture where you say, which way do we go? And what is the data set that we're using? And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, we always want to be, especially within operations, everyone, you, you're people of action. But I've had to go in over and over and say, let's make sure we, what's your problem statement? What problem are we trying to solve? And taking that time out to really make sure we clearly articulate or define the problem because we all think we've got an answer, you know, whether a machine is broke or whatever it is, but unless we have a chance to really look at the whole data set, be data driven, understand the facts, a lot of times we're going to come in with this on preconceived notions based on our you know, past successes or failures. And we got to be very cautious about that. And I think that, the thing that I love about the team here is we are really trying to be data driven. Uh, you have to have that heart and you have to have that emotion, but at the same time, you got to make sure it's the old dragnet show, just the facts. I mean, let's not let the facts get contaminated by, you know, other agendas or, or how emotional we get about a certain, certain topic. You have to know how to cross that line from your head to your heart and your heart to your head back and forth. Don't you? Well, you mentioned crossing the line when we first discussed this. I'm going, now, you know, my boss says, you know, we want to make sure we're maintaining our ethics. And not only do we not want to approach the line, I want to stay six feet behind the line. And so when we say crossing the line, but it's, as you said, it's between your, your head and your heart. And, and I think that that's right, is the time that we can actually balance that out. You know, we talk about work-life balance, but that's the same thing. It's your yeah. emotional and your mental balance in terms of how you proceed. And, you know, there's always going to be times where we kind of get, you know, I myself, I get fired up about stuff and then you have to take a step back and say, well, is that really necessary? What type of example do we want to set for the rest of our team? Bill, you are always amazing to me. I could visit with you forever, but as we turn the corner to, to close this, this podcast, if I'm an aspiring leader, if I'm, I'm in the workforce, I'm trying to make my way, uh, I, I want to grow, I want to learn, what words can you give us uh, to the inspiring leader who's listening to this podcast? I, I, have I ever talked to you about the twins? 
this is in a good sense. The twins are tenacity and perseverance. Oh, I love it. And I and I like to talk about the twins because it's it's like number one, never give up. There was a quote, and I'll forget who was. It says, you know, we may end up seeing failure, but tenacity and per- perseverance are going to actually drive us forward until you start to blame somebody else. And if you if you're blaming somebody else, then you're no longer taking accountability for your actions. But mm-hmm. I think that you've got to be willing to ask for help. And it's very difficult for us to go in and, and ask for help. But most leaders are willing to give you the time if you're willing to ask for help and guidance. I mean, I, I don't know of anybody that I've run into that if, if you say, hey, I need 15 minutes of guidance or coaching. And people like to share their wisdom. Uh, but don't be, don't be afraid to ask for help because if you don't ask for help, you don't get to choose the help you get. I love it. You- Amazing, amazing wisdom. And last but not least, if you find a wallet. I'm going to turn it in. I'm going to broadcast it. They just have to they have to tell me the serial numbers of the dollars inside it, and everything will be all good. <laughs> right, in order to claim it. Oh, you've been a joy, Phil Marshall. Thank you for, for giving us a bit of your time. And I know you're very busy and a lot going on. And for you to invest uh, in others like this means, means a lot. Um, thank you. I, I certainly appreciate it. Any last words you'd like to say before we, before we leave today? Well, Larry, just thanks for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. I always enjoy our dialogue. I learn something every time we, we talk. I, you know, I know that hopefully it's mutual, but, uh, just this has been very enjoyable and hopefully there's a couple of nuggets that uh, people can take away. A Thank ton you. Of, a ton of nuggets today, Phil, and it certainly is mutual. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Well, there you have it. Uh, Phil Marshall, a tremendous leader who gave us tons of nuggets. I hope that you were able to, to gather some takeaways from, from this interview. Thank you so much for joining Crossing the Line. If you want to find out more about who we are at Eagle Center for Leadership, just check out the link in the show notes below. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Thank you for crossing the line and for making a difference. Until next time, take care.